You are listening to Radio Maria Canada. We now present the Health Hub, hosted by Kathy Biasi. Good morning, everyone, and welcome to the Health Hub. I'm Kathy Biasse, your host, and along with our producer, Alex Diaz, we would like to welcome you to our show this morning. Good morning, Alex. Good morning, Kathy, and good morning to our listeners. How are you? Not too bad. I'm pretty well, thank you. I'm doing well. Good, good. Anything new and exciting going on? No, just same old, um, same old. Just powering through, you know? Uh, I understand completely. I understand completely. We are being taped again. Um, hopefully one day we'll be back in studio. I look forward to that. But right now we are still taping our shows, so you cannot call in, unfortunately. But please do follow us on our social sites. We are on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook, and we are at the Health Hub RMC on all three. And do feel free to email us at thh at radiomaria.ca if you have any questions or concerns or want to get in touch with a, a guest of ours. We'd be happy to help you in all aspects. And do please subscribe to our podcast. We are the Health Hub on iTunes, SoundCloud, and all your favorite podcast platforms. And you can also find our podcast on the Radio Maria Canada website, which is radiomaria.ca, and on my website, which is kathybiasse.com. So I've had an interesting um, uh, client that I've been working with, and because this topic, which is uh, non-alcoholic fatty liver disease, has come up uh, more and more often in practice, I thought it might be of some relevance here to introduce you to it. Um, because it is something that is creeping more and more into the health space. Non-alcoholic fatty liver syndrome or liver disease is a term used for a range of liver conditions that affect people who are not necessarily drinking. So this is not a liver disease that's impacted by alcohol. And the main characteristic of this is too much fat stored in liver cells. And it is currently the most common form of chronic liver disease. And what happens is the fat tissue builds up in the liver and it slowly destroys it and impedes, first of all, impedes function and begins to destroy it. And I have seen people diagnosed as young as 14 years of age that have been diagnosed with fatty liver disease. And unfortunately, there are no real symptoms until potentially irreversible liver damage has occurred and really no medication on the market to treat it. This is really uh, a diet and lifestyle disease that is creeping into our, our Western world. And the people most at risk for it are obese individuals and people who have high blood sugar. The interesting piece here when I was researching this is that there is a very close link between the health of the liver and the health of the gut so researchers have found that unhealthy gut bacteria can contribute to non-alcoholic fatty liver disease and beneficial bacteria can protect against it. And here's the, the connection of why this is so. So you know over many conversations and many guests we've had that we have a microbiome and a large majority of it resides in our intestinal tract or gut and that this impacts our health greatly, both negatively and positively. But there is a really strong connection between the gut and the liver, and this is called the gut-liver axis. And here's the reason that, this is, uh, that the gut so profoundly affects the liver. The majority of blood that circulates from the intestines, so we eat food, we start digesting, 
Um, but the majority of the blood flows directly through the liver and it, it flows from the intestinal tract to the liver through the portal vein. And then this portal vein splits up into smaller capillaries that run throughout the liver. So what this means, you might be able to surmise it, is that blood coming from the digestive system passing through the liver has real impact on the health of the liver because the liver is really the first mainstay of the gut-blood-liver connection. And our gut, our liver does a very, very good job of detoxifying it of detoxifying the car- the compounds and and uh, toxins that come through it, but the the compounds from microorganisms and a healthy gut microbiome, an unhealthy gut microbiome, can really overload the liver with toxins. An unhealthy mix of um, these gut microbes can damage the lining of the intestine. And again, increasing the, the passage of things to the liver. So you really see how the microbiome here plays into the health of the liver and vice versa. A very healthy gut microbiome can protect the liver from being overburdened with these toxins. So again, another, another reason why we have to attend to our gut, but again, because the health of the gut is not really attended to as much as we need it to be, especially mm-hmm. with the, the diet that we have. There is a, a very strong understanding now why the, the rise in non-alcoholic fatty liver disease may be at play here. So very important to understand this connection, understand the health of, you know, systemically the gut impacts the health, but you know, just when I I saw this person being so young diagnosed with fatty liver disease and non-alcoholic fatty liver disease, it really, it really got me wondering. It really got me even a broader vision of how diet and lifestyle can impact our overall health. And again, another vehicle that you can really take a hold of and impact your health in a very positive way. So I wanted to bring that attention. It was kind of alarming when I saw it. Um, so yeah, take care of yourself. You really do. You really have to watch what you eat. You have to be exercising because you, you know, the liver does regenerate for sure, but it's such a key, key organ in our overall health that we really do have to pay close attention to it. So I don't know if that's something new for you, Alex, but... Uh, it, it, it definitely caught my attention. I was just intently listening there. That's why I wasn't necessarily interacting too much there with you just because it was uh, a lot of uh, very valuable information that I think all our listeners uh, should take their heart there. I hope so. It's, it's intuitive, but it really, like I said, it, this, this young person being diagnosed with it really gave me pause um, yeah. in what I was doing. And, and I, that's why I went to research it so, um, so intently and just sort of brought this forth to you. But anyways, on to today's show and another very interesting topic. We're going to be talking about PCOS, which is polycystic uh, ovarian syndrome. And our guest is Vanessa Fitzgerald, better known as At V's Honey. And she is a certified health coach and nutrition response testing practitioner. She has a private practice based in Los Angeles where she helps people achieve optimum health. Vanessa specializes in hormone balancing autoimmune issues, acne, eating disorders, detox from meds, digestive health, IBS, PCOS, thyroid issues, weight loss, anxiety, depression, and more. And she offers personalized care, health and exercise and lifestyle coaching, both in person and over the phone. Along with diet and exercise changes, she tests people for immune challenges, food allergies, heavy metals, and more in order to find the underlying causes of symptoms. Vanessa is widely recognized for her very public documentation of her detox off of Adderall, a drug she had been prescribed and addicted to for 13 years. A firm believer that drugs are never the solution, she became an expert in helping others achieve optimal cognitive function, balance their hormones, restore their gut health, and live a joyous life free from medication. 
Vanessa also serves as a health and wellness expert for eBoost. Our focus is on PCOS, and we will be discussing a lot of issues around it. Um, Some main points are what are the common characteristics and symptoms of PCOS? What is PCOS light? And what are the main hormones at play in a PCOS diagnosis? So we will be back to talk to Vanessa in a few minutes. Listening to Radio Maria Canada. We now continue with the program, The Health Hub, 
hosted by Kathy Biasi. Welcome back, everybody. Again, our show is being taped, but please do follow us. We are on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook, and we are at the Health Hub RMC on all three sites. Vanessa, thank you so much for joining us, and welcome to the show. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Everything going well through all of this? Absolutely. I'm, I'm finding ways to enjoy the slower pace of life. Excellent. That's good advice for everybody, actually. I am, too. It kind of makes you appreciate uh, a slower life, and I think in some way we're going to miss it when things go back to normal. But we'll press on. So I agree. we've got a great topic here, uh, one that we haven't broached here on the Health Hub. So it, it's something that I've been greatly looking forward to discussing with you. But first off, tell us your history, you know, how you got into this line of work, um, your history with the disease, everything. So I myself am a nutrition response testing practitioner, and I have a private practice in Los Angeles, California. And uh, what I do is I help people find the underlying causes of their symptoms. So we use whole food supplements and homeopathic remedies to help bring the body back into balance. But we test for things like virus, parasite, uh, fungus, bacteria, heavy metals, food allergies, and so on and so forth. Um, I got into this line of work because of my own health journey. And it all started when I was younger and in high school, just having some hormonal shifts and, you know, as a teenage girl getting a period and acne and all that stuff, I just realized that food had such a big connection to the way our appearance was and how we felt and how our brain operated. Uh, I then was diagnosed at 19 with something called PCOS, which is polycystic ovary syndrome. And from then on began my journey trying to manage and heal the cyst as much as I possibly could. What was your symptomology? What, What led you to investigate and then finally be diagnosed with PCOS? It was an accident. It's one of the most overlooked syndromes out there, especially in women. Um, I was on birth control at the time and didn't realize uh, how toxic birth control can be for the body, but I was on it nonetheless. And I was, so I was getting a period, but at the same time, I was having weird diabetic reactions to sugar. So every time I would eat sugar, my, my, Blood would feel like it was boiling. Um, my heart, I'd have heart palpitations, things like that. Uh, I had a little bit of facial hair growth, but nothing excessive. And I was still a thin girl. I was starting to lose my period on birth control. So it wasn't really doing much for me anymore. I uh, had a really bad bout of gastroenteritis because it does, it can affect the colon as well. And I was hospitalized, but my appendix didn't come up on the CT scan. So they wanted to check it as a follow-up. And when I went in to get an ultrasound of my appendix, they accidentally passed over my ovaries and like, wow, do you realize you have polycystic ovary syndrome? So it was by complete accident and I had no idea what it was. And it was this, you know, back then it was, this was, you know, over 10 years ago, it was a scary diagnosis to get because there was, there wasn't as much information on it as there is now. So it was a lot of, uh, you know, you may be infertile, you may never be able to get pregnant, all of which is not true. So that's how it all began. So your symptom, go over your symptomology again. Now, were you having pain? Is this a painful thing? No. Some people do report that they get pains. Mainly the symptoms are facial hair growth. Pain is not as common, but really it's just scanty or missed periods. Acne is a big one and uh, weight gain. Obesity is another one. But really you find PCOS in people that are obese. It doesn't really cause obesity, but it can cause rapid weight gain. So my symptoms, though, were not necessarily rapid weight gain. It was more like some facial hair growth, acne, uh, scanty and missed periods. And then I would also have these crazy diabetic fluctuations, like an extreme reaction to sugar. So are we talking in insulin-resistant terms, or are we talking more of uh, testosterone and estrogen? What's the interplay with the hormonal piece? 
So it's, it's all of it. So insulin is a hormone. So therefore, this is why it's such a big problem. Um, it can cause it. Basically, when you have PCOS, there's a big, you have an issue with insulin resistance. So cutting sugar is essential. But at first, especially when I was diagnosed, this was not told to me by the doctors. Diet was never correla- correlated with your, with your diagnosis. And therefore, if I were to continue eating sugar, I put myself at a very high risk for diabetes. Therefore, that's why they prescribe metformin for a lot of women with PCOS, which is a which is glucobosh. It's a diabetic medication and a very strong one at that. Mm-hmm. But yes, testosterone levels are definitely elevated, especially if you're experiencing facial hair growth or acne. But again, it's not necessarily one size fits all. While my testosterone was high and I was put on metformin and spironolactone, I quickly, by changing my diet and my exercise routine, I balanced out my body and therefore the spironolactone started taking my testosterone levels to such a low point where I almost had, you know, close to nothing in my body as far as testosterone is concerned. And testosterone is what gives us, uh, you know, life force that gives us our mojo. It gives us the ability to have muscle definition, our libido. So without testosterone, which a lot of girls are finding because they're taking this medication, maybe their testosterone levels though aren't that high, but they're experiencing acne and facial hair growth, but the medication isn't necessarily helping with it. So PCOS is a very tricky diagnosis. And without the ultrasound of the cysts, sometimes we can get, um, we can get mixed up between just a straight up hormonal imbalance caused by something else and, you know, real true PCOS through and through. Now, is this a medical diagnosis if there are no, so back up a bit, you can have Mm -hmm. PCOS without having the actual cysts. Is that correct? Well, not necessarily. So there are two camps right now there. It's hard. It's hard to, give a diagnosis to a girl that's experiencing a lot of facial hair growth, acne, but they don't have the cyst present and maybe their glucose levels are off. So now there's this trendy diagnosis I'm finding in my practice that people are coming to, to me with called PCOS light, uh, which is, is foreign to me. But at the same time, it, it, you may show the same blood markers. It's, it's very controversial. For example, my OB doesn't believe in it unless you have cysts. Some OBs are very strongly, they're very adamantly against the fact that you need to have cysts present in order to have a diagnosis. But that's what it is. It's polycystic ovary syndrome. So as far as my practice is concerned, and now I'm not a licensed doctor, but in my you know 10 plus years of experience with this syndrome and with helping people clear and treat the symptom is, uh, is that you don't necessarily have PCOS if you don't have the cyst. There's, there, there may be something else that is contributing to these hormonal imbalances. Okay. So, because I know, I know I have someone close to me that was here in Canada diagnosed with PCOS because she had, I think, two of, I don't know, the five common symptoms of PCOS. But just given the diagnosis without any sort of where to go from here. So if you have PCOS, the classic um, PCOS with the cysts, is it treated in the same manner as if you don't have the cysts? So if, if you have PCOS and there's a, an insulin intolerance and a high testosterone level, are we still coming at this disease the same way? Is it classified as disease in both camps? Yes, in both camps it is, uh, but, but as I mentioned before, a lot of doctors are finding that it is a it is a basically a general one in ten women have PCOS with the cysts, but it's becoming a more generalized term because of you know sometimes hormonal imbalances in women. I mean, I, I feel the frustration for your friend because it's really hard to get to the root cause of what is actually causing the hormones to be thrown off. So PCOS sometimes does get 
thrown around. But if you're showing issues with your, with your glucose, for example, because insulin is the hormone produced by the pancreas that allows cells to use sugar from your body's primary energy supply. And if your cells become resistant to the action of insulin, then your blood sugar levels can rise and your body might produce more insulin. And excess insulin might increase androgen production, causing difficulty with ovulation, also causing facial hair growth and acne. But if you're only experiencing facial hair growth and acne, for example, and missed periods, but not really an issue with insulin, then it's also very hard to give a PCOS diagnosis. So it's really important, I say, is like when you go to the doctor and you get these diagnoses, you want to know what are, what are they drawing their conclusion from? What is it? What showed in your blood? What showed on the ultrasound? And then I'm a big fan of questioning everything. And then doing your own research to figure out, does this make sense to me? Maybe there's something else going on, like an underlying fungal or viral issue that is laying in the body that I need to detox out of the system. There's just, but first and foremost, diet, definitely to help balance the hormones. Let food be thy medicine and thy medicine be thy food, just like Hippocrates said. So it's that, that's an excellent place to start. What blood panels would you, if you in the back of your mind are thinking PCOS or are they, are all your clients coming to you diagnosed or are they coming to you and you are saying, you know what, maybe this is the avenue we're going down? How, how they are come they coming to, me with, to you? They come to me with a diagnosis from their doctor. They and do. then I always ask them how they were diagnosed. And if they were never given an ultrasound, because that is very common, it's actually hard for some women to get an ultrasound. Most doctors for some reason don't uh, want, I don't know what the exact reasoning is, but don't want to provide the ultrasound unless you know, you're know you pregnant or you're looking to get pregnant, things like that. So I always demand that they get an ultrasound in order to get a final picture of what's really going on. So I say get a blood test where they test your testosterone, your estrogen, uh, your thyroid, your glucose, make sure you do it right, do a fasting blood test ideally, and then go in and ask for an ultrasound. Now, in taking care of someone who actually has the physical cysts, is this um, taking care of through surgery? Is this taking care of strictly through medication? Is it a combination of the two? How is that dealt with? Unfortunately, if you have true PCOS, since it almost looks like a string of pearls across your ovaries, you can't remove them, But and they don't burst. But pregnancy, the only known cure out there is pregnancy. Sometimes it'll go away after pregnancy, and sometimes it'll come back. And you can indeed get pregnant. Sometimes women need a little bit of assistance with that depending on a certain maybe pharmaceutical drug to help them become more fertile. Some women do in vitro. And some women don't have a problem at all getting pregnant with PCOS. But I definitely... Sorry, go ahead, Vanessa. I would definitely ask for both blood and the ultrasound just to see what exactly is going on. As, like I said, if you have one or two cysts, sometimes those can erupt and you can possibly get those removed. Are the cysts impactful on the ovary themselves or are they just more of a nuisance? that is the, the, the end product of hormonal imbalance? It is, when it's PCOS and there are multiple cysts, yes, it, it definitely impacts the ovaries, as in it's, it's, it's more challenging to get pregnant. It's not you know the easiest thing in the world. There's a medication called Clomid that a lot of women take in order to get past the cysts so that their ovaries do take. And then some women have to end up doing in vitro. It's, it's very rare that you get an accidental pregnancy or just a natural uh, pregnancy with PCOS. So what are the cysts doing to the ovary? It's just preventing, at first, well, we often find with the scanty and missed periods, there's a problem with ovulation just because of the excess insulin and the increase in androgen production. But if you change your diet, you know, most of the time you can shrink the cysts possibly and increase your fertility. And in my case, what has recently shown, which was a huge surprise, is that 10 years of working on this through diet and supplements, uh, my cysts, my doctor told me are no longer present, which is wild. So, 
now I, I am a believer that anything can happen, really, if you are able to change your lifestyle and your diet and really commit to it. But because theoretically there was no cure for this? Is that what, what you were, it was just a managed? Yeah, the, exactly. The only known cure out there is, you know, other than like some probably holistic practitioners out there that are saying that they have cured their PCOS or whatnot. I still am hesitant to say I cured mine. You know, it, it's, it's a, I'm still in shock from, from the ultrasound, but I do believe that you can possibly shrink them and that anything at this point is possible. And maybe there is new research coming out. Mm-hmm. Interesting. Okay. I think we're going to take a quick break here. It's, it's a, it's a good time because I want to come back and then I want to get more into the diet and lifestyle pieces that you used and, and get into more of, um, you know, why this is becoming such an issue. So everybody, we will be back in a few minutes. You are listening to The Health Hub, here on Radio Maria Canada, a Catholic voice wherever you are. To contact us and be a part of the show, email thh at radiomaria.ca. We now continue with the program. 
Here once again is your host, Kathy Biasi. Welcome back, everybody. We're talking to Vanessa Fitzgerald, and we're talking about PCOS. So we've covered a lot in the first half. Vanessa, the the, the friend that I have was a, is a young girl, and uh, who I was talking about earlier, who had uh, was diagnosed and sort of left out there with a PCOS diagnosis. Are you seeing this commonly in younger girls? And you know, is this something that you could pick up on, uh, uh, you know, as a mom when they're younger? Like, it, what can we do to help out young women that are getting this and maybe giving them a leg up? So I see it in in girls anywhere from 17 up until women getting diagnosed for the first time at 38 years old. Um, I think the way to help, especially if you're a mom with a teenager or a young girl in her 20s and, you, and she's struggling with things like facial hair growth, acne, uh, maybe some irregular periods, I think it's always important regardless when your daughter starts to go into the gynecologist for whatever it is, for pap smears and annuals, that you do ask for an ultrasound if there is anything off, even if it is just in a regular period. You, you want to be able to rule that out. And then, of course, the blood test to back it up to see what is going wrong with the hormones. I think that the best thing that parents can possibly do is work with their kids on diet changes if they are experiencing any hormonal imbalance. Forget just PCOS, even thyroid autoimmune disorders. The gut plays such a huge role in the body because if you have low-grade inflammation or even you know, excess inflammation, it's just when white blood cell production of substances come to fight an infection. And research has shown that women with PCOS have a type of low-grade inflammation that stimulates polycystic ovaries to produce androgens, which can lead to heart and blood vessel problems. So it is super important as a parent or as a friend to encourage uh, the woman to start to look at her diet and uh, particularly her intake of things that can raise her blood sugar. The insulin connection is an interesting one to me because, you know, we connect insulin to diabetes, we connect insulin to inflammation. And I'm wondering, is there a connection? If someone is diabetic, would they be more inclined to have PCOS? Are these two totally different lanes that we're driving in? No, absolutely. If Out of the one in 10 women, I'm sure we'd look at it, there'd be a high amount in the uh, obese diabetic category. So, for example, if you do have PCOS, you're at a higher risk for diabetes just because of the insulin issue. So it is essential to clean that up. But then you also see women who are obese, and because of their diabetes, they, which is very inflammatory and is an insulin issue, you see cysts develop in their ovaries. Interesting. So then what type of a diet would you recommend for someone who has PCOS? My, my main changes to the diet are no sugar, and that includes fruit. I mean, you can have fruit you know, at a, in moderation, but if you're eating excessive fruit for every snack throughout the day and your breakfast and dessert, fruit is still fructose. So at the end of the day, you know, your body does have um, it, it does have a different speed at which sugars hit your system. So like, let's say you were to eat white sugar versus uh, a maple syrup, you know, the maple syrup is going to hit your blood sugar a little bit. There's a glycemic index and that is legit. But at the end of the day, your body just metabolizes it as sugar. It's not like, oh, this is white sugar. I'm going to store this. Oh, this is fruit sugar. I'm just going to get rid of it it's still sugar when you have an insulin resistance issue in the body. So I say low fruit and no processed sugar and low on sugar replacements as much as possible. And then grain-free is ideal just because especially, I know you're in Canada, but grains in the States, we, we don't always know where they're coming from, how they were grown, how they were processed. And I'm seeing a lot that brown rice in particular is causing some diabetic people to go into diabetic shock. So you want to be careful of your grain intake. 
For me personally, I went on a sugar-free, grain-free diet, and that has helped me tremendously clear my acne, cause my testosterone levels to balance out. High-intensity cardio is excellent for PCOS as well. Um, And then just by going grain-free, I lowered the inflammation in my body. Why high-intensity cardio? High-intensity cardio because it helps with your body's ability to uh, regulate any PCOS symptoms. It controls your cravings, urges to binge. The sweating is essential. We do see a lot of eating disorders coming from PCOS because usually when you have that first bite of sugar or heavy starches, since you can't, your blood sugar can't regulate, the craving for more becomes extreme. Um, And high-intensity cardio can really help manage that. What about an intermittent fasting schedule? Intermittent fasting is an interesting one. While it can definitely help for those that are more towards the overweight side, sometimes the women that are not in the overweight category, if you're intermittent fasting more than a couple times a week, you can stress out your adrenals and then your adrenals pull from your testosterone. So if you're experiencing that you're already on medication for your testosterone or your testosterone levels are even, you can really crash your body as far as testosterone and uh, your adrenals are concerned. Also, you can miss periods because of too much intermittent fasting. So I would say if you're very high in testosterone, okay, maybe try intermittent fasting. You can try it four times a week to start. If you're not and your levels are not too high, I would try and start with two days a week because we also don't want our body to go into starvation mode and then we stop producing a period. Mm-hmm. And blood sugar is key here in this. Yeah, I find mm-hmm. that working with people, there are two ways they can go, either overeating in the window or undereating. And I think with women, they tend to undereat in that window, which could be um, counterintuitive for what you're trying to accomplish. Now, the two things have um, popped up, um, but I want to go to is is when you're talking about androgens, people may not be clear as to what that is. So maybe we could go back to that and you can explain what an androgen is. So androgen is, it's basically elevated levels of a male hormone, and it may result in signs of uh, physical signs, such as excessive facial and body hair and occasionally severe acne and male pattern baldness. So alopecia in some women. Um, so what we want to do is bring down those androgen levels. And I find a natural way to do it that has worked quite well for a lot of my clients. But again, it's not an overnight fix. You, it takes a little bit of time for it to start working in your system is high levels of inositol. So if you do, do find that you have very high androgen levels, inositol is great because it works on testosterone. So it'll help start to clear up the skin and reduce the facial hair growth. Interesting. Does genetics, have you found genetics playing in this at all? They do say that, you know, genes might be linked to PCOS, but it's not as uh, prominent as some of the research is on as far as like excess insulin or low-grade inflammation or excess androgen causing it. Hereditary, we don't see that as often. Hmm. And the the impact on fertility. So you've said that you've had women as old as 38 just diagnosed with PCOS. Has this come on the back of an infertility issue or um, just someone who's really not read some of the symptoms that, that has been going on? I think it's more they have not been reading the symptoms. They, they okay. haven't come to me if they're trying to get pregnant and they can't get pregnant and then they find that they have PCOS. It's more they came because all of a sudden in their mid-30s, they started breaking out with crazy acne and they don't understand why they have adult acne all of a sudden or their period just disappeared for a year. That's when I usually have women come to me that are a little bit older uh, and, and finding that they have this diagnosis for the first time. It was interesting the the you know the plausible link between the rise in infertility, the fact that you're not seeing a lot of genetics play in PCOS, and how this loop might be um, a big piece of the infertility picture that's not being considered as much as it should. 
Well, I think, you know, as the world progresses, we're exposed, you know, that everything is faster, more convenient, people trying to be more efficient. We're exposed to a lot more toxins on a daily basis than we were a hundred years ago. So what all these toxins do is cause inflammation in the system. So more and more our hormones are being tweaked as is a lot of things change, you know, as we evolve as, as a human species. So I'm finding more and more that because of the chemicals that are in our food or that are in the air um, or the things that we're putting on our bodies, it is causing more and more inflammation, which is causing these, these cysts to develop in the ovaries and for hormones, just hormones in general to be thrown off. Is there a connection? So back to the androgens, the high level of testosterone, how does this for women impact the estrogen levels or the progesterone estrogen ratios? So when you have too much of the male hormone, typically we see low estrogen. Um, And when that comes, it's also very hard for the body to produce a period. So therefore, we often find that people are put on birth control, um, which is not my favorite way to, to handle PCOS and just to bring their estrogen back and to make their body perform the way that it should with periods monthly. Um, and then sometimes we see low levels of testosterone or the testosterone levels aren't truly affected, but there's too much estrogen in the body. And then sometimes that will you know, create very heavy bleeding or breakthrough bleeding, which is getting multiple periods a month. So each hormone, you know, almost like does a dance with the other. And since the body is fully connected and since we have more hormonal organs than just located in our pelvic region, we have our pituitary, our hypothalamus, our pineal, those are all in the brain, our, our, adrenals are hormonal organs, which we typically overlook, um, and our pancreas. So when all those organs are affected by this one diagnosis, usually you have to look at every single hormonal level because they are, when one is low, they're usually taking from another or spiking another. Mm-hmm. We, we rarely see that the body's completely, you know, flatlined in all categories. So when you're working with somebody, are you treating similarly? Um, are you treating them similarly if they got a PCOS diagnosis? Or are you really digging into the imbalances of the hormones? Is it really a unique um, approach to everybody? Or can you, can you deal with it strongly from the similar stance of lifestyle and diet and environmental manipulation? Well, as far as diet and, and, and lifestyle is concerned, that's pretty much across the board. I change, I do the same thing for everyone and I ask them all to eat the same way and to exercise the same way. Uh, other than that, it's very different because my training is a nutrition response testing. We're trained that symptoms are not there just because they're there. It's not necessarily that the ovaries have cysts or that testosterone levels are high just because. Mm-hmm. We have to look for what is in the body. And in my training, it is inflammation I'm looking for. So I'm looking for what is causing which hormonal organ or perhaps another organ to be very stressed out. And then I have to basically peel back the layers to get to the root cause of what exactly is happening. And then I take the inflammation down with whole food supplements and homeopathic remedies. But since everybody is so different... I can't put everybody on the same program because some people are allergic to certain things or they can't digest certain supplements or, you know, things like that. Allergies and digestion issues come into play when you're playing around with supplements. That's why it's really hard to take care of the masses just by going here, take this packet of stuff and this is what's going to heal you because everybody is experiencing different symptoms and have different blood markers. And what's the time frame for uh, for getting PCOS under control, generally speaking? Oh, I mean, you can you can get it under control in a month, really. Oh, honestly, it, it's yeah, it's 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 pretty on. It's pretty easy if you can really commit to the diet. It is amazing how much this changes 
half the symptoms that are going on in the system. Then we can really dive into the other stuff to really try and heal it. If we still are getting periods that are not regular and you know, still have some acne on the face, but just in, within one month, the body will start to heal itself because of the lack of inflammation coming from diet. At least we've taken out one of the inflammatory markers. Well, that's hopeful for a lot of people, especially people who have been suffering for such a long time. That's, so Absolutely. that's wonderful. And you've got um, some programs that you offer to people. Tell us about some of your online programs and other things that um, you are in venture with, uh, with different companies, because it's very interesting. So we're actually developing uh, an online program right now for women with PCOS to help coach them through how to work with their doctors, food, food programs, meal prepping, uh, workout schedules, and some, some supplements to go with what their diagnosis is. So they write into the program, oh, hey, I have high testosterone, then we give them a suggestion, things like that. But we're still, that's still in beta. So we're working on that right now. But you can um, stay in contact by visiting our website, which is beeshoney.com, or emailing us at info at beeshoney.com. Otherwise, we still offer our one-on-one phone and in-person sessions. Um, and then I'm also working with a company called eBoost, which is a healthy energy drink, because you know the, the Red Bulls of the world out there are pretty toxic for our systems. And since caffeine is a very popular thing in our culture, uh, I've, I've partnered with them to sort, sort of work on a supplemental energy drink. So not just a straightforward caffeine drink, but something that can also deliver benefits and antioxidants to the system at the same time. Can you use that in your own practice, the eBoost? Seems like something that would be very beneficial for people. Um, some of my clients that I'm trying to take off of, you know, toxic caffeine substances, I definitely will recommend eBoost. Other than that, um, I try not to push caffeine products on my clients because mm-hmm. ideal, ideally we, we keep to a certain amount of caffeine a day. Right. Excellent. So again, we will have all the contact information for Vanessa up. Thank you so much, Vanessa. It's a very interesting topic. And I know that's something that um, a lot of women are, are wrestling with, whether you it's the, the legitimate doctor diagnosed or the PCOS light, but really informative. So thank you so much for joining us today. My pleasure. Thanks for having me. And everybody, we'll talk to you next week on The Health Hub. to The Health Hub, hosted by Kathy Biasi, here on Radio Maria Canada.